Welcome to The Forest Garden, your guide to transforming your organic gardening practice into an edible and holistic forest garden landscape. On today's episode, we're going to be diving into the idea of fall sowing. Part of our three-part series on the fall garden, today we're going to be talking about all things mushroom inoculation, winter sowing, overwintering of seed, the various methods that you can use for succeeding in these ventures, and much more. So please get ready, buckle up, and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Forest Garden Podcast with Mike Amato and Ben Bishop. This is the second of our series on fall gardening in the food forest. We started with garden prep and composting uh, in the fall, and this episode is going to focus on sowing in terms of both plants and mushrooms. Not just sowing, but also planting trees, bare root, basically just getting more plants in your yard for the following year. And so we're going to go over some of the techniques we like to use, some of our experience doing this sort of work in our own food forests. So I hope you learned something and let's get this started. Yeah. So today, you know, we're just going to be covering more things about autumn. The leaves are falling. Organic matter is being accumulated. We're revamping our systems a little bit and preparing for the winter. Something that in this time of year that we don't really always think about is that this is also a time to start planting stuff. This is a time to start sowing seed to overwinter through the cold and the snow. The seeds will do just fine. They'll get stratified by the cold. And then you'll have an earlier crop for the things that you winter sow now into your garden that will just sort of pop up on their own whenever, you know, the time is right. Certain seeds, especially cold hardy crops, and we'll get, we'll get more into that. And then we're also going to talk today about mushrooms and about some of our favorite mushrooms to sow into wood chips or into decaying organic matter. And yeah, it's going to be an exciting episode. We talked in a previous episode about seed stratification, but maybe we should just quickly define that because that's kind of an important term to define here if we're talking about putting seeds in the ground in the fall. And so, you know, with temperate species and certain types of woody and even not woody herbaceous plants, the seeds require a period of winter stratification or cold temperature stratification to break dormancy and then germinate. If you think like a plant, you wouldn't want your seeds to fall in, in the autumn and then sprout right away because a winter's coming and that would be really tough on a brand new seedling. So usually the seeds are built into their own sort of plant wisdom to wait until the, the winter comes and they experience those cold temperatures. And then once it starts to warm up and then the seed will germinate. So some people will, will do some germinating in the refrigerator. I do that for some seeds, some things, especially that are more precious and rare or hard to come by because, you know, if you're doing sowing, things could happen. You could forget where you sowed things or uh, animal could, could eat the seeds. So for certain things, I'll, I'll want to do the stratification in the refrigerator, but in terms of efficiency for growing lots of trees or shrubs or perennials, it's going to be a lot more efficient to just let nature do its, do its course. Like let the winter time temperatures in your area, assuming you have basically sufficient enough cold temperatures in the winter 
then you could just let winter take its course. So that's probably what I recommend people doing when they're starting out, unless you're, like I said, unless you're working with species that are really hard to come by and those, those seeds were hard to get, then you can do it in your refrigerator. So Mike, in your garden in the fall, what are you planning on doing uh, as far as planting in the ground? So my fall garden is usually made up of primarily cold hardy crops, a lot of brassicas. We in New England do have this problem that brassicas have a lot of pests and there aren't a lot of predators around at that time to, to eat the pests. But this kind of gets into what I wanted to talk about in terms of fall sowing, which is, you know, you, you just talked about the importance of potentially taking really rare seeds and, and stratifying them in your refrigerator in the sort of opposite circumstance where you are purchasing seed from a local seed source. Like if you have a seed company within 50 miles from you, and let's say there are, you know, seeds that are very affordable, like something just like arugula or, you know, mustards, any Mizuna, just sort of the cold hardy crops that you can acquire in large quantity of seeds for not too, too, too much money. My advice in that regard is simply just to broadcast seed into open spots of your garden where you're okay having a self-seeding annual exist for a long period of time. That's part of the reason why I mentioned mustard greens. Red giant mustard has annualized or perennialized, I guess, established itself. Not perennialized. What's the term here? Naturalized. Naturalized, yeah. So red giant mustard. Also, I think the southern curled mustard. Both of those have naturalized themselves in my garden. They'll just pop up randomly. It's, you know, from a seed, if they themselves went to seed at some point, because it's also important to let some of your plants go to seed for that reason. Or if I just broadcasted seed last year, maybe a few seeds didn't germinate, but then over the course of the winter time, they stratified, they got pushed into the soil by rain and snow melt, and they got pushed into a certain little nook that they were very happy. And then suddenly this year they decided to germinate and there's nothing wrong with that. In my opinion, I mean, this is only if you're able to acquire a decent amount of seed for a couple dollars, like let's say like a quarter of an ounce of seed of one of these mustards for four bucks. That's usually not the case with a lot of seed companies. A lot of them will sell you like 25 to hundred seeds for whatever amount of money, but you know, there are places to acquire larger amounts of seeds for less, which is what I did. And with these sort of cheaper seeds that just happen to be from a few towns away from me, I'll just broadcast them all over my landscape in places that are generally cultivated areas. It could be a bed that has lots of ornamentals in it, but there's no reason that you can't grow mustard under them or around them. And the time that I do this is generally in the fall. It could be after the frost, it could be before the frost. And what I'm counting on is that the winter is going to stratify and put these seeds kind of through their natural processes, where they know that they're going to pop up in the spring and then they do. And then I have a lot more food and there's nothing wrong with that. So, the, you know, some of the seeds to sow would be, like I said, mustards, carrots are really good to broadcast in this way. Carrot seed is really affordable. Also chicory, which is basically dandelion arugula i ben do you have any other recommendations i'd say like garlic chives and things in the onion family are also really good because they can take a variety of different environments if you can find spots that will be shady in the in the heat of the summer that's a great spot for any uh anything in the alium family 
but when you're so when you're planting these out are you planting them you said in cultivated areas like beds and stuff so i think it's important to, to note that you know if you if you're doing sowing in like lawn or grass there'll be so much competition in there yes they might come up in the in the spring but if you're trying to mow your lawn you might you might be running over your your seedlings and that might sound kind of obvious but i've definitely done that like thinking like oh let me just convert my lawn into like clover and mustards but the, unfortunately the the grass is already well established so i try to if i'm going to sow it's got to be in, you have to have some preparation whether that's scratching the surface maybe you've composted or even honestly what what's a great idea is to do either like lasagna style composting to prepare an area and you could you know, and for those who aren't familiar, that's just basically layers of cardboard newspaper. We talked about it in our last episode, um, but that's a good way to kill the lawn that's growing underneath if that's what you're dealing with in your space. And then on top, you have compost or you have topsoil, um, whatever you're using, and, and that's what you can be sowing in. And then by the time spring rolls around, when that seed is going to germinate and send down roots, by that time, the cardboard and newspaper has broken down sufficiently. Because if you did that, if you made that bed in the springtime, the roots of the plant would have trouble breaking through the that sort of that layer. So I think that's just you know kind of important to, to mention when you're when you're planting these seeds out that you're putting them in good soil. They're having surface contact with the soil too. Like if you if you mulched with wood chips, for example, like a thick layer of wood chips, and then just throw your seeds on the surface, you know, not only are they not touching the soil, but they're also exposed to the elements, exposed to the rain that could wash them away or exposed to birds that could, you know, eat them. So you have to be kind of cognizant of the soil that you're putting your seeds in. Agreed. So I was just going to talk about wood chips. Another way that you could potentially, instead of the lasagna method with the compost, you could also put down cardboard boxes or some, some landscapers like buy rolls of sheet cardboard for this purpose, but uh, if you're doing it yourself, cardboard boxes after you tear off all of the plastic that's attached to it is just fine. And you'd lay that down and then get some amount of wood chips from your local forestry service or from wherever you can acquire wood chips dumped on top of them, and that is called sheet mulching. It's a great way to erase your lawn. And like Ben said, if you're choosing to sow seed into that wood chip top, the likelihood that, you know, basically your germination rate and the guarantee that the mustard seeds you threw there are going to grow next year are probably lower because yes, they can wash away. But I would also argue that some of them will get down to the cardboard layer and then stay there for the winter. And then the cardboard, by the time spring rolls around, will degrade. And I'd say that, you know, I've, I've sowed seed into wood chips in sunny areas and seen them pop up surprisingly well. I mean, it just depends on how many seeds you're throwing there. If you're throwing tens of thousands of seeds into an area, one good example of this would be if you just were to purchase regular old sunflower seed that you can buy for $8 to feed your birds. And instead you decided to just broadcast that all over an area in full sun covered in wood chips with that method I described. The next year, or, you know, let's say you did this in the beginning of the spring before a heavy rain and the heavy rain pushes all of the seeds down into that mix of wood chips and closer to the soil, you will be amazed at how many sunflowers you get. Like, it's incredible to think that 
big seeds like sunflower seeds can germinate and sprout plants in that way but it works you know it, it's just it's just that you have to recognize that if the seed is super super valuable to you you definitely don't want to do this it's more for just something like I don't know corn for like pop. I've also done this with popcorn that I've bought at like a farmer's market and I threw the popcorn into an area and sure enough every single one of them shot up a corn but yeah that's the seed yeah, definitely a good point to to mention because I mean in some cases it will work it'll be species dependent but I will say speaking of sunflowers my mistake in this regard was in wasn't in the fall I think it is spring sowing of sunflowers in my my front yard and I did exactly what I just said not to do which is I just scratched my lawn because it's a big long strip by the road and I was like maybe if I just scratch up the sod and throw in all these sort of pre-soaked sunflower seeds maybe it'll be fine and they they germinated fine and they're growing but they're very stunted because there's a lot of competition from the grass so I'm not sure if it's just the species of grass that I have is not getting playing very well with the sunflower roots I thought maybe they would shade out the grass but yeah they're really struggling <laughs> so it's really important to make sure that you know what you're what you're sowing into and not just putting your seeds in the grass like what I did so don't make my mistake I've seen basically exactly the same situation down the street with somebody who had, uh, I don't know if they like leased out a part of their land or they did it themselves. They had someone come and till with a big rototiller and then they planted it all to corn and like the grass that was already there and all the weed seed got tilled up is just as tall as like, you know, the one foot corn and the corn, you know, it should have been six feet tall by now by the time they did it. So one thing I, I want to mention too here is when we're talking about tree seeds and nut seeds, again, this is something you could do in your refrigerator, but if you're doing a lot of them, or in some cases it's better to do it outside to, again, to let nature take its course and, and expose the seeds to those very cold temperatures. You know, if you, let's say you, maybe you know where you want to plant your trees. So you're putting your pecan seeds or chestnuts or walnuts in the different spots, or maybe you don't, and, and you're just putting them all in one pot outside or maybe just in one area like a little nursery tree nursery area of your yard and you could totally do that I mean it's great you can just use the earth to pot your to start your seeds instead of potting soil and pots and stuff that's that's not a, a problem but you do have to be cognizant of of predators and seed eaters like squirrels and raccoons and all those pesky things so what some people will do is they'll uh, if they're not putting things in pots and like keeping them in their basement and stratifying them that way or leaving them outside, there's there's various techniques you can look into. But if you're going to do it in the ground, which is good, but maybe not as good as using an air prune pot. But in, in either case, if you, whatever you're doing it in, uh, if you use wire mesh, like chicken wire or even something even smaller than that, that's a great way to prevent anything from digging up your your, your seeds. Uh, same thing goes for fruit, fruit seeds as well. I've had squirrels dig up peach seeds before, um, not so much pawpaw seeds, but because nothing really likes to eat those. But just as a rule of thumb, it's probably good to actually, I think a friend of mine had the squirrels dig up his, some of his pawpaw seeds outside, not to eat them just because they were jerks and they just wanted to dig up around the pawpaw and it killed, killed the trees when they germinated in the spring. So if you're going to do tree seeds, I would say try to do it with some protection. Yeah, that's a good point. You can also do the sort of sand in the five gallon bucket method with the, the tree seeds and stick them in a cool, dark place or like 
you know, stick them in a shaded area. Some people who have like a house that is raised off the ground will just stick them in sort of the crawl space. Yeah, like a, I, I've seen it. I saw a video that Davis from Humble Abode Nursery up in Western Mass made about stratifying or about cold stratifying his tree seeds. And he did exactly that. He, you know, basically just stuck them in the outdoor crawl space under his house in some sort of medium, I think sand. And then, you know, by the, the spring, they had all started to, to shoot out doing that or using a larger air prune bed, which is essentially just really taking advantage of the hardware cloth that will hopefully prevent squirrels and other rodents from getting into your prized chinkapin chestnut zone or whatever you're choosing to, to use. But for most of our listeners, I imagine that, you know, for the most part, you can just take smaller seeds and broadcast them and it'll be okay. So moving on into the idea of mushroom cultivation, fall is a great time to purchase some grain spawn, or I would recommend sawdust spawn, and to, at the same time, get a load of wood chips dropped off at your house, hopefully for free. So hopefully there's an area in your your lawn or on your property hopefully in your potentially forest garden where you can dump these wood chips. And while you're doing that and you're getting this big load of new, fresh organic material, the best thing that you can do is get some potentially like King Strafaria spawn and broadcast it all throughout your forest garden and then get the, just cover it with that new fresh wood chip layer. The, the fungi are just going to benefit you in so many different ways. It's going to provide food for the soil. It's going to provide food for you. It's going to benefit the plants in your landscape that are planted amongst them. The uh, soil, recently I I was reading up on this. I don't remember exactly how many parts per million, but like to have healthy soil, you need to have a ridiculous amount of mycelium in the soil. If it's, you know, there's, there is a difference between dirt and healthy soil. Having a healthy soil, you really need to have a large amount of fungi going on. You need to have a lot of mycelium in your soil to, for it to be a happy, healthy soil. So who, you know, who would have thunk you can just order this stuff online? I would like to sort of recommend a few different types of spawn to get and where to get them from. But I feel like Ben, you probably have something to say about the, the soil health. Well, I was just thinking about what you said about how much mycelium is actually in healthy soil. And I forgot the statistics, so I just looked it up. It's in mycelium running, it says that there's a, in one cubic inch of soil, there's enough mycelium, which again, remember this is the, I wouldn't call it the roots of the fungi because it's almost like the actual body of the fungi, but they, they look like roots and they're little strands that run across the soil. And there's eight miles of this mycelium in one cubic inch of soil. So you can just imagine how much is in, you know, a whole acre of, you know, many feet of soil. It's pretty extensive. And yeah, there's, it's definitely a very, very important part of food forest. Uh, Honestly, it should be one of the layers. If it's not, if, if you can't consider it part of the underground layer, when you're talking about like roots and tubers, I think you should probably include mycelium in that. And I think there are some people who do actually classify it that way. And I have had some experience, you know, using mulch to grow mushrooms. I'm not a mushroom expert by any means, but as far as what you were talking about with acquiring mulch from a forestry service and like, and using wood chips in your food forest, 
just try to use hardwood wood chips. And you can ask them sometimes. You can say, like, are there a lot of pine and conifer and softwoods in this? Because they're not going to grow. They're going to have a lot more volatiles and alkaloids and other plant compounds that can kind of reduce the amount of fungal growth. That's actually what the living, especially these fresh wood chips, some trees will actually put compounds in their wood and in their tissue that actively reduce mushroom growth. Because of course, if you're a living tree, yes, there's some symbiotic relationships with mushrooms, but there are saprophytic mushrooms that are trying to break down tree tissue. So the trees are battling that by putting some compounds in. So you don't want to use pine and conifer softwood wood chips when you're, when you want to use your mulch for growing mushrooms as well. You are so very right. Generally, if you're, if you're getting wood chips, you want to go for hardwood. I will say how, however, though, that I got a mix of horse chestnut, pine, lots of different types of pines, I think an oak and one other type of hardwood, maybe I can't remember, but a lot of it was pine and I've had so many flushes now in sometimes some of the weirdest times of the year, like during the summer when it's really hot out and I'm away and come back and see that my entire, you know, quote unquote patch where I inoculated is just flushed with, with garden giants. So they, good point, but they probably will flush even if you have a lot of pine in your wood chip situation, it's just not ideal. However, it's probably important to note that the success of my mushrooms is probably species dependent. Specifically, I sowed King Strafaria, Strafaria rugosa annulata mushroom spawn in a sawdust form. I did this back in the early fall and late winter. It did very well in a mix of hardwood and softwood, but that might not be true of other fruiting mushroom types, edible, edible mushrooms that you would purchase. So you really have to do your research specifically on what species of mushroom likes what sort of inoculate. It does vary quite a bit. I am also a huge advocate for using pine wood chips in other situations like Hugo Mounds because softwood will break down faster in general. If you're going to be inoculating something, you want to use hardwood because what you're doing is essentially breaking down the wood chips faster than they would otherwise. So generally people want hardwood because it'll last a few years longer and they won't have to get a whole new load of wood chips dropped off. In the case of something like a Hugel Mound or a mulched area where you normally would be putting fall leaves, pine works pretty well there because it breaks down faster than hardwood and it sort of benefits the system by cycling things in a slightly faster rate than if you were going to have a hardwood tree dropped off. So moving on, more onto the mushroom spawn side of things. I acquired my mushroom spawn from Fungi Ally, who is a guy based in Massachusetts. I'm based in Connecticut. I was like, oh, local, cool, or somewhat local. There's also North Spore, and I think they're based in maybe Vermont or Maine, or I think Maine. Regardless, they're both highly recommended from, from me. I've ordered some stuff from North Spore, and most recently, mostly from Fungi Ally, and both of them provided flushes of mushrooms within a month or so after I sowed them into the area that I did. I would recommend taking the spawn and sort of creating a, I guess I would say a, a quote unquote bed of about like four feet by four feet where you spread your sawdust or grain spawn, cover it with mushrooms, spread it again, cover it with mushrooms, 
or you could just dump it and then just put several inches of wood chips on top of it. That's that's what I did. They, they recommend doing more of a lasagna method, but I've always thought that was a bit of a, a bit too much. And I found that just choosing one spot to put most of the, the stuff that you get, whether it be grain or sawdust, and then covering it with fresh wood chips is much better than spreading little bits of the spawn all over the place. However, it is definitely worth trying both methods. When I first saw videos recommending it, that's exactly what they said to do. They said to put it in one spot and then it'll flush. And I, you know, that's, that's what they recommend. But I was like, oh no, like, it'll, be, it's, it'll be healthy and fine. I'll put it in a bunch of spots and it'll all reach out and connect with each other. And that might be happening right now, but it's taking much longer than I expected. So in the spots that I just put everything in one place, it did, it did really, really well. And I've gotten more mushrooms than I ever could. Well, actually, I was going to say I've gotten more mushrooms than I ever could think of to, to know what to do with, but I ate all of them. So I guess that's not true. You knew, you knew exactly what to do with them. Yeah. And I guess a little hot tip, uh, grilling garden giants or strafaria, king strafaria is my favorite way to eat them. They are fantastic on the grill. I've had them as a replace, like a vegan replacement for a burger. They taste very similar to portobello mushrooms, in my opinion. Some people say they have sort of like a nutty taste to them. I've never gotten that. I think it tastes very similar to portobello. And some there are some mushroom, other mushrooms I've had that I thought have been very like mushroomy tasting, if I can, or like sort of funky tasting. Like I'm not a huge fan of oyster mushrooms. They're they're good. And I've had, and I've had them in certain dishes that they're absolutely delicious, but if I'm eating them just sort of like, you know, with basted with butter or oil or whatever you choose, and then like just salt and grilled or roasted with what other other spices added, I vastly just like the, I really like the taste of the garden giants much better. And I can, I can just give them like a five-star recommendation. I know that you have also uh, cultivated them and have them, right? Yeah, I think they kind of have a nutty taste a, a little bit. It's been a while since I've I've tasted the the wine caps is, is another name for them. But yeah, they're one of the the common uh, people's gardens. That's a good good one to start with. It's what I started with as far as growing mushrooms in the garden. And I will say, you know, about the whole like, do you put put all the the spawn in one spot or do you spread it around the garden? There might be people you know more educated than us that have an answer that have tested this more rigorously but yeah i can see it working better in both ways because just to pause here for a second i'll do i'll make this brief but essentially what most mushrooms do or excuse me what most fungi do with their mycelium is they will spread their mycelium out to the extent of the bed or so if you have a really gigantic area of wood chips you're before they are ever going to fruit before they're ever going to produce edible mushrooms they're going to fill that entire space with their mycelium. They're going to stretch out and try to explore all of it. And then the following year, that's when they'll actually turn to fruiting as opposed to just colonizing the area. And so if you are spreading, if you're spreading it around, the idea is that you're going to help it kind of connect to itself sooner than if you concentrated all the mycelium or all the spawn in one spot, because then it has to travel very long distances. But if for example, if there was like little islands of wood chips where it couldn't actually go and continue to colonize and it, so it could complete the colonization of that little one island, then yeah, then you might actually get mushrooms much sooner. But it sounds like in either case, putting them all in one spot worked for you. 
spreading them around worked well for me, but they did all sort of fruit in one area. So, so I think maybe the fruiting spot maybe is more particular than where you end up putting the putting the spawn itself. I remember Trad Cotter, who's a mycologist, told a story of he had a pile of wood chips. He's got several of them that he's inoculating and he wanted to fruit one of the piles. So it, it was fully colonized and he was ready to, you know, I think it was coming out of the winter and it was about start starting to fruit. But I think some wood chips might have spilled over from the pile next door, like which was a fresh pile of wood chips. And so it connected the two piles together. So as they were just about to pin and start fruiting, but as soon as the the mycelium noticed, oh, there's a bridge and I could like cross over into the other pile and there's plenty of more food here. The incentive is not to fruit and send out spores to go look for more, to, to procreate and look for more food. It realized, oh, there's plenty of food right here. And then the fruiting all stopped. So that's just something to keep in mind when you're kind of managing your carbonaceous materials while raising fungi. Wow, that's a <laughs> that's crazy. I, I love when these little weird plant or you know fungi in this case mycelium stories come out about the the crazy secret life. Oh, they're pretty smart. Yeah, they are pretty smart. It's very interesting that you pointed out the sort of like island method because I realized that what I did was that I chose one little section right up against the the back shed in, on my property where it's completely shaded out and very moist I created a little patch there and then I created other small little patches or quote-unquote islands of the, the spawn and then I also spread it around a established maple tree where I had plant or the swamp maple in my backyard where I had planted some other like sweet woodruff and ground cover shade ground covers and they never fruited there it, it all of the garden giants or the wine caps fruited in the most recent place that I planted or I sowed a huge amount of mycelium but I bet you what happened is just that you know they they hadn't fruited yet because they were covering the entire mass of 30 by 40 feet with worth of wood chips and they had already done all that work when I sowed this last large amount of recently acquired spawn and then when they touched that, they were like, okay, our work is done. Here's all the fruit in this one spot. <laughs> you know, that's probably what happened. Ah, okay. Are there any other species of mushroom you want to mention here? I think that King Strafari is a really good one to start off with. I also purchased morel spawn from Fungi Ally or from North Score, which is listed as sort of like an experimental kind of thing because they're not entirely sure of how well they'll do sowed as a sawdust spawn. I will give you results come the following spring, which is usually when they pop up. I already have morels on my property that are just fruiting from my sunchoke bed, which I feel incredibly oh, lucky. Yeah, right. Like, you know, that's unheard of. People forage for these mushrooms. They're edible and choice. And somehow they just appeared on their own in a cultivated bed I made. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, do you have any others? I mean, none that work the same way that Kingstropharia do, but you know, I've worked with shiitakes before. Of course, you, you can't, that's not something you could just like easily sow. You typically use logs. You're drilling oak logs or maple logs. There's a process, there's plenty of YouTube videos on it where you're drilling into the log, you're inoculating it with the spawn, and then you're covering it up with beeswax, that sort of thing. And sometimes that, that still might take another year before you're going to get 
fruit from that. Other than that, there's, you know, you can grow oyster mushrooms on lots of different substrates. Doesn't have to be just wood. You can grow oysters on straw and reishi mushrooms, lion's mane. I haven't actually done too much in terms of the inoculation of those species before, but I've seen them growing in food forest conditions, generally in the shade. So if you have like mature trees, it's a great spot to be doing this sort of mushroom work. And I don't know, I think not only are they, you know, are you growing mushrooms for food, but they're participating in the ecosystem. Paul, Paul Stamens has some research showing that pollinators like honeybees will use, I think they're probably just using some metabolites in the, in the mushrooms. I think it might even be the garden giant and they're able to use to either isolate, I'm not sure how they're extracting it from the mushrooms themselves, but it's protective against some of the diseases that the, that the honeybee faces. So by growing them, you're not just growing them for yourself, you're growing them for the ecosystem. Very true. And you're right. It is, it is wine caps. It's Paul Stamets is the sort of like guru of mushroom lore to any of our listeners. I highly recommend checking out Fantastic Fungi, which is a documentary. It's not all about Paul Stamets, but he's a main, a main actor in it, I will say, or a main contributor. And he's also very well deserving of, of finally having this sort of recognition because he's a amateur naturalist who I like aspire to I don't, I don't want to say I aspire to be him one day, but like, man, is he cool? He's a, he's a cool dude. So highly recommend fantastic fungi on whatever streaming service with Paul Stamets. Moving on from the, the mushroom side of things. Another thing during autumn that we can do is that we can plant perennials for the frost, like a perennial that you might get at your local garden center. Sometimes it's literally, they trim it back and all you're buying often usually very discounted or at like a 75% off rate or 50% sale is uh, the roots of the plant. If you are going to plant some sort of herbaceous perennial, anything from like a hardy hibiscus to, you know, like they have stuff like lamb's ear and rhubarb. Sorrel? Sorrel, perhaps. Basically during the fall, your local garden centers are often trying to get rid of a lot of their stock and it's a great time to be purchasing herbaceous perennials, something that has a really established root system. It could even be a fig, you know, it could be a lot of things. If it's something that's like a woody shrub or an herbaceous perennial that has a really large root system that is gonna survive the winter, pretty much I'd say probably anything bigger than like a four inch pot. But I've also had four inch pots that I, you know, planted in late October and they, I presume that they had died and then what like the lemon bomb I got came back the next the next season in the spring super strong. It could be mint, it could be oregano. Most herbaceous perennials, their roots will survive through the winter so long as they're cold hardy in your area. So when you go to your local garden center or whatever and you see that there's some really ugly looking plant that is on sale for a dollar, but it has a healthy root system it's very worth that dollar. It's exactly as healthy as if you were going to purchase a root bound, super green, super uh, vibrant looking plant that, you know, from the same genus or exactly the same plant that that is like earlier in the season. If you plant it in the fall, it'll overwinter, it'll establish its roots. It'll have all of, uh, you know, the remainder of the fall, the winter and the early spring to send its roots out before it ever shoots up any new growth. And it'll be much more established than if you were to, in the spring, purchase that same plant for much more money at wherever you get your herbaceous perennials or 
hardy shrubs from. Also a good time to go out and if you're doing foraging throughout the season and you notice like, hey, this might be a good spot to come back in the fall or winter to take divisions or cuttings from. So I was thinking more specifically divisions. In some cases, it helps out the plant by reducing competition. If you know seeds are germinating next to the tree or shrub that aren't going to survive there long-term because they're too close to the mother plant, you can go out and take some of these plants, a small amount, of course. You don't want to be taking lots of plants out from the wild, especially if they're you know, threatened. Of course, you wouldn't want to take any plants from the wild if they're, they're threatened or unless you have a real good conservation plan. But anyway, yeah, it falls a good time before the trees have gone completely dormant so you, and the shrubs have gone completely dormant or even the herbaceous layer because those are going to be a lot, the herbaceous plants are going to be a lot harder to identify in the wintertime, if at all, because they're, the herbaceous, the, the leafy vegetative parts are not going to be, be there in the winter. So you'll have to be like, oh, well, uh, was this patch of sunchokes or something that I saw on the side of the highway, was it here or was it, you know, a mile down the road? But if you do it in the fall, I mean, you could still identify where those, those are and you could take some and bring them back to your, to your food forest. Yes, very good point. I did exactly that with black raspberry canes in the fall of last year, just a wild variety that had exceptionally large fruit. They just were growing on the side of the road down the street, very, very well established. And so I came in and took some divisions with a few different clumps. I harvest sustainably. I took like, you know, less than like 12% of what was there because there's quite a bit and just, you know, took a few canes, plopped them in the ground in a few places didn't think much of them, didn't give them any attention, didn't wa- I've never watered. I just put them in the ground in places where they'd have decent access to water and then gave them a nice covering of mulch. And now, months later, yeah, they're already taking over the areas that I put them. The Rubus family is very good at surviving. So the sunchokes is another another good example of something you probably could find and then and then harvest as opposed to purchasing one single tuber online from whatever permaculture organization for a decent amount of money, or sometimes you can actually just get them at your local like Whole Foods, although it depends on where you are, or potentially a much better grocery store than Whole Foods. This past fall, a year ago, about I had, I was fortunate enough to visit Ithaca in the Finger Lakes region. And I have to say, shout out to Green Star Food Co-op. It was like the idyllic food co-op not like kind of a chain, but not really like a local chain version of what food, like of what Whole Foods could or should be. And it was incredible. Like, you know, they had sunchokes that were the most choice edible ones just there to buy. They had all these wild food, foraged food, even it was, it was really cool. I'd say so to anyone who's visiting the Finger Lakes region, highly recommend stopping there for all your grocery needs. It's a good time to mention our favorite nurseries, our online nurseries. You mentioned some already for mushrooms. Yeah, I guess that's a, that's a good point. And I guess, yeah, because the next thing I was going to talk about is the idea of bare root plants and ordering or finding or transplanting bare root plants before the frost and planting them or after the frost. So yeah, I guess here, I'll start. I, I would give a shout out to Burnt Ridge Nursery. They, well, actually I had several of the bare roots that I ordered for them not do so well, but I feel like it probably might've had more to do with where I planted them and maybe some, some errors on my part. Burnt Ridge is a really fantastic nursery for bare root ordering. 
I would also shout out Fruitwood Nursery. They are a smaller organization, I think, maybe just sort of like a mom and pop kind of situation in California. And they have an incredible amount of mostly, I feel like mostly like Scion that you can order, but you can order Scion from them during the winter from a ridiculous amount of cultivars of things that many of them you can just stick in the ground during the winter time, like elderberry or anything in the Ribes family or genius, you know, like uh, currants, gooseberries, what have you. You can just like order from them during the winter time, stick them in the ground, forget about them. Same thing as just taking a division from any black raspberries around, they will turn into whole new plants. So I, yeah, I'd, I'd say Burton Ridge for me and Fruitwood are, are two standouts just off the top of my head. Yeah, those are great. For me, I like, I'll focus on trees because that's the world I'm in right, right now. England's Nut Orchard out of Kentucky is great. They've got a good selection of tree seedlings. I think they even sell some, some saplings too, some larger trees. They do all sorts of fruit and nuts, persimmons, pawpaws, pecans, walnuts, you know, you name it, they, they've got it. Same thing with Perfect Circle Nursery, maybe even more. Uh, it's not, this one's even smaller in size. I think it's just owned by, by uh, one or two people. But they do some, they have a really interesting selection. They've got cultivars of honey locust and hybrids of heartnut and butternut and strange things like that. And of course, Oikos tree crops is, used to be, you know, one of the preeminent, just a fantastic tree nursery, but, you know, they're unfortunately no longer selling, but they still have, a, you know, a, the property. So I wonder if someone's going to take over and still provide some some of those resources to the, the public or what, because yeah, I definitely would like to, to get over there. I think they're in Ohio um, and see what they have. Yeah. The last one, and this is a kind of a strange one. It's not even in like the Eastern or Midwest it's called sacred succulents. And of course they do cacti and succulents as well, but they do woody plants, but they tend there, there are, they do have like ones that are native to North America, but th- their selection is just insane. I, sh- I think I showed them to you, didn't I, Mike? Yeah, you did. Their their selection is ridiculous. Yeah, and it's it's trees and herbaceous plants and shrubs from around the world, basically. So you have to be really careful with your your zone there because they ranges. Some of them are tropical, some of them are subtropic, some of them are temperate. But yeah, like th- that's not bound by growing region or continent, and it's all things that you basically can't find anywhere else. You can find them at Sacred Chuckins. So I'll just I'll plug those three, and then of course where I work at the University of Missouri, we sell, it kind of changes from year to year, but we definitely sell chestnut seeds. And I think in the future, some grafted trees of various nut trees, walnuts and pecans too. We haven't done that this year. And I I don't want to say for sure we'll have them available, but people should, if they're interested in some like specific cultivars of, of those, you know, Eastern nut and Northern nut trees to definitely contact the, the Horticultural and Agroforestry Research Center at the University of Missouri. I was going to say that Ohio is road trippable. Like if Oikos was there, that'd be a good meeting point between the two of us from Missouri to, hmm. to Connecticut. We could do a special episode from there. Yeah. I've got a portable microphone now. But no, I don't, I don't think they're based in Ohio. I think they're in like Michigan and the, oh, or you're right. Minnesota. Are they in Minnesota or Michigan? I, I think you're right. I think it is, it is Michigan. I bet their Google page is still up. I think it's Kalamazoo, Michigan. Yeah, you might be right. But I've also gotten stuff from them that was uh, Minnesota field grown. And Minnesota seems to be like a big part of their organization. So maybe they have like 
a homie who does stuff. I don't know. It's a, it's a strange name for it, a place and, to be. Uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan. Like those tree cops. I, yeah. Anyone listening who is maybe interested in uh, helping out a permaculture nursery, maybe they're looking for someone to take over. I don't know. But anyways, yeah. So bare root trees, places to order them from. Yeah, I, you know, uh, there's another, like you mentioned Perfect Circle. I, I would also maybe recommend Sacred Circle in Vermont, which is another sort of two-person organization. Cool people, though. Very, very cool people. And they have a decent variety of things. Also, maybe check out Jonathan Bates's organization, which is Food Forest Farm. He does, I feel like, most mostly bare root plants for spring delivery or like spring shipping, Edible Acres, which is Sean Dombrowski. We talk about these people somewhat often on this podcast, I guess, as they're just people who are based in the same things that we're interested in. He does a lot of fall shipping and has chestnuts and, you know, persimmons or whatever, depending on the season. There's a lot, there's a lot of options out there for, for people to order from. And I guess really what I'd recommend is to kind of look for the, the sort of tree crops that you're looking to cultivate and then decide, you know, see who has what, because every year it does change somewhat unless you're ordering from one of the larger organizations like One Green World or it used to be Oikos. I guess they're not doing stuff anymore. Edgewood Nursery, Aaron Parker, also a good option. But moving on from the, you know, who to order from, the idea of planting bare root is really important. This time of year, you can order a bare root tree plant it, it'll, you know, not have any foliage on it because you'll be planting it probably in October or November or later, maybe it's during the winter time. So long as the ground is not frozen and you can dig it up and put this tree into the ground and you're not going to have sub-zero temperatures or below freezing temperatures that are just like, basically in most of these situations, even when it's freezing, you could do things to thaw up the earth to put trees in the ground, although it's not ideal this is a much better time to be planting tree crops bare root or to be planting tree crops as a whole as bare root plants, as opposed to getting trees in a pot where the roots might be root bound or just completely wrapping the tree and strangling it. That's not something that you really want. Often when you get a root bound plant, the person will tell you to just chop away a lot of the root mass. And that is not ideal for the plant. If you get a pawpaw tree, we've, we talk about pawpaw maybe too much on this podcast, but they have a big taproot. If you buy it in a pot, frequently you'll find that the taproot is just strangling itself. And if you plant it like that, it'll keep growing in this circular motion and eventually kill the tree. So it's much better to purchase a small bare root plant of persimmon or pawpaw or whatever you choose and plant it as you know a foot tall of growth above ground and hopefully something like a two foot taproot underground rather than purchasing it in a different fashion in the spring or in the summer. This is this right now and moving into the winter months is the, the best time to be planting trees, in my opinion. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, whether or not the tree is living in the place that it was germinated and grown from originally, or if it's growing in your, your garden because you had it shipped, shipped to you, it's going to be exposed to those cold temperatures regardless. And so you know, it's, it's not going to be hurting the tree to be exposed to the winter time because it's going to face the winter time one way or another. So if you if you transplant it and yeah, there might be a little bit of transplant shock, but hopefully your tree's fairly dormant when you're when you're doing this this fall planting. 
yeah, the, the winter is going to be no problem. And like you said, it's going to be establishing itself throughout the remainder of the fall and maybe even a little bit in the wintertime when it, if it warms up and then the very, very early spring, it will continue to grow. And it's going to be, a, it's going to be in much better shape to face the following spring and summer, especially if you have hot summers where you are, like I did in Tennessee. Um, and the, the summers are pretty hot here in the, the Midwest uh, as well. And I've definitely seen lots of trees die that were planted in the spring or even late, in late spring as well. Um, that probably would have been, would have done much better if they were planted in, in the fall because yeah, the, it takes a while to get established and to get the root system, you know, working properly and hydrating the tree properly. And so if you're doing that in the spring and then all of a sudden the summer comes and you get those hot temperatures and full sun conditions, especially, that's definitely a huge stressor on the tree and, and could potentially kill it. Planting in, in late spring is a bad idea. Never, it's really, it's a really bad idea to plant any type of tree, but often also like fruit trees during the summertime. If you're at your local garden center and you're, it's July and they're having a tree sale, yeah. probably not the best time to purchase that tree. But if that tree is still there in September or October, much better time. Yeah, you can, so, you can purchase it and, and keep, if like, if you think it won't be available and you really want it, um, you can purchase it and keep it in a pot in the shade. You know, I mean, especially like a nice air pruned pot. For those people who aren't familiar, air pruning pots have slits or holes uh, throughout the sides and base, and essentially they prevent what Mike just described, that sort of root-bound pattern from happening where the, the root is spinning around the sides and around the circle and choking the plant out. It will basically go into the slot, into the hole, and then exit the pot, essentially, and then once it hits air, that little bit that's exposed will die and then the, it stimulates the plant to send out new roots. And so you get this more vigorous multi, I don't know what you call it, but more rhizomous root system as opposed to like single tap roots. When you transplant those trees, you know, when, when you're finally ready, like the following fall, the root systems will be much healthier and they won't be root bound. So, I mean, yeah, you can, you can still buy it. And, and if you have a place to keep it where it's going to get watered and it's going to not face full sun exposure, uh, you can probably grow it for a year like that. So we've pretty much come to the end of our, of our episode here. The, the only last little tidbit that I'd like to say for anyone who made it this far, almost an hour or so into this episode is that, one element of the fall that's very important that you can be doing right now is planting out a greenhouse or low tunnel for a, uh, a winter harvest. So generally what we're going to be doing here is planting cold hardy greens, sowing seed for brassicas, leeks, perennials, any sort of perennial greens like perennial arugula, minutina, which is actually herbastella plantain. That's a perennial green that is very tasty and was mentioned in Elliot Coleman's Forest Season Harvest book. But for anyone who made it this far, in the next episode, we're really going to be talking more about these things. So for right now, maybe do your own research, sow out some cold hardy greens into a greenhouse space that you might have or somewhere that you can provide at least one layer of winter protection, even with something like a, you know, a plastic sheet, a see-through plastic sheet. And uh, it could, uh, I've even seen people use old shower curtains, which is kind of crazy, but depending on your climate, uh, something as a used clear shower curtain can keep the frost off some plants well enough, like 
red Russian kale that if you're in like a zone eight or zone seven climate, they'll overwinter just fine, which is kind of crazy. So yeah, so check out our next episode, which is going to be really about the idea of the winter harvest, the four season harvest, and then some other things like storage of winter vegetables and pruning and collection of scion. Looking forward to recording that episode. All right. Well, yeah. So thanks everyone for listening and can't wait to see you next time. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.